Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. This is episode number 46 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Wednesday, December 15th. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked uncensored and unfiltered if you'd like to support what we do go to our website docwashburnshow.com and click on the button that says become a patron before we get to our interview guest for today's program let me just tell you if you've tried to buy a car recently you realize there's such a chip shortage that you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for now people i know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live that's where red river your way comes in Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. The freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online and they will drive it to you no matter where you live. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry. Red River experts are still there to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has an Explore Payment Options button. Clicking the button that says Explore Payment Options guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, Producer Brian, if we can get our, um, our interview guest. Ah, there we go. And I just hit the blue button. Blue button. Fantastic, fantastic. There is one journalist who has covered the plight of the January 6th political prisoners better than anyone else. Julie Kelly is a senior contributor to American Greatness. She has written for The Federalist, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and The Hill. And she was kind enough to be my guest when I did local talk radio in Little Rock, Arkansas. It's an honor to welcome Julie Kelly to the Doc Washburn Show. Ms. Kelly, how are you today? Oh, good. Oh, geez. Please call me Julie. And thank you so much for having me on. Okay. Sure will, Julie. Absolutely. Yes. Look, I would like to start by playing a couple of... um, short audio clips of President Trump from his rally on January 6th, and then we can maybe move on to what happened at the Capitol that day. So first, we want to play the clip of President Trump uh, telling, exhorting his supporters uh, to be peaceful. We have come to demand that Congress 
do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today we will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity of our elections, but whether or not they stand strong for our country. Okay, so that's one short clip. And then we have another uh, clip where President Trump uh, actually tells them he's, he's going to be going over there with them. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Okay, Julie Kelly, what did happen at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th? Well, uh, Doc, I can tell you it is not the common groupthink narrative that we were told at the beginning, which is that the president, with those words and his uh, belief and comments, supported by tens of millions of Americans, that the election was stolen, right. was rigged and stolen from the American people. Um, but that what happened that day is that he incited a quote-unquote armed insurrection um, that resulted in the death of a police officer and four other people, which, of course, four other people did die, but not because of Donald Trump. Um, and so that this was an effort, this was a coup, it was an attempt to overthrow democracy, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what happened. And as we continue to learn about potential involvement by the FBI, by direct involvement by D.C. Metro Police and Capitol Police officers who provoked the crowd early on by attacking them and assaulting them, resulting in the brawls that we saw over the next few hours. There's a lot more to the story behind the scenes than what the American people were presented with that day. Indeed. You know, there was a plot to uh, kidnap Democrat Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer Three, three months earlier. Now, that plot seems to have been orchestrated by the FBI, and a lot of the people involved in it were either federal agents or federal assets. Do you think there was any connection between the Michigan governor kidnapping plot and what happened to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th? I definitely do, and for people who are not familiar with this case, this is the alleged kidnapping of Gretchen Whitmer, a very public foe of Donald Trump. Um, and this so-called kidnapping plot was uh, revealed to the public very publicly um, as early voting was going on in October of 2020. And, of course, Michigan is a crucial swing state. And so this led to all kinds of accusations against Donald Trump that he is promoting violence, his alleged tied to white militia groups, white supremacist militia groups. But what came out as the trial was supposed to be getting underway is that you had as many FBI agents and informants involved in this plot as you do defendants. And as BuzzFeed reported, they did an exceptional investigative uh, report on this. But for the direct involvement of the FBI, their informants, and the handlers in uh, the Detroit FBI field office, none of this would have happened. 
So that trial has been delayed now until March of 2022 because defense attorneys are asking for thorough investigations of all the FBI assets involved. The first special agent, some of your listeners might recall, uh, was fired by the FBI after he was arrested for assaulting his wife. Um, And so, but what is sort of ironic, coincidental, maybe not, is that the head of the FBI office who oversaw this plot to allegedly kidnap uh, Gretchen Whitmer was transferred to the D.C. field office in the middle of October 2020, of course, you know, several weeks before the events of January 6th. We already know from reporting by the New York Times that informants had been run into the Proud Boys, which is one of the militia groups, alleged militia groups involved in January 6th, ran informants into that group uh, starting in the summer of 2020. We also know there were FBI informants and the so-called three percenters, another militia group. So you can't look at the past history of the FBI, especially the past five or six years, and how politicized that agency is against Donald Trump, his associates, his family, and now his supporters, and think at all that they had nothing to do with January 6th. In fact, recent history suggests that they played a very instrumental role in what we saw happen that day. Indeed. Um, maybe you could tell me or tell my listeners and me who are Stuart Rhodes and Ray Epps and why haven't they been arrested? Okay, so this is um, so Stuart Rhodes is one of the founders of the Oath Keepers. And so for your listeners, there are three alleged militia groups who are tied to Donald Trump and who are supposed to be involved in orchestrating the events of January 6th. Those groups are the Proud Boys, as I just mentioned the Oath Keepers, and the Three Percenters. You have about 20 members or alleged members of the Oath Keepers who are now facing conspiracy charges related to January 6th. Person one in every single indictment, and we're now on, I believe, the sixth superseding indictment, person one is Stuart Rhodes. He is, as I said, the co-founder. He was working throughout 2020, attending events, um, going on, you know, so on media networks talking about they're going to steal the election. Then afterwards, they've stolen the election. Sort of recruiting people to uh, to attend these rallies. He is described as person one. We are here now, more than eleven months later. Stuart Rhodes has not been charged with any crimes. So how can you have a person, person one, who allegedly was the leader of this so-called conspiracy? who led the Oath Keepers to what was they engaged in nonviolent behavior. They didn't bring weapons. They walked in in a stack formation. Uh, They all left. I think only one of them is charged with a weapons violation. But the person, Stuart Rhodes, who was at the Capitol that day, by the way, still 11 months later has not been charged. That was an issue first raised by Darren Beatty at Revolver.News. And we're still noting now he still faces no charges, and that is raising concerns that he was working with the FBI, some sort of FBI asset possibly, um, and helping to instigate Oath Keepers' conduct that day, before and during that day. Okay, that's Stuart Rhodes. How about Ray Epps? Okay, so Ray Epps also is associated with the Oath Keepers, and he is the man that Congressman Thomas Massey, 
some people may recall, confronted Attorney General Merrick Garland in hearing several weeks ago and played video of a man named Ray Epps. He's a tall man wearing a red MAGA hat. Uh, on January 5th, he attended sort of a pre-rally rally with a bunch of Trump supporters where he told the crowd they need to go into the Capitol building on January 6th. The next day, he is seen uh, directing people who are leaving the president's speech at the ellipse, headed towards the Capitol. He's directing them which way to go, again encouraging them to go inside the Capitol building. And more importantly, Doc, he is seen speaking with a man named Ryan Samsel, who has been arrested and been behind bars since January. Ryan Samsel is the first person to kind of overturn these bike racks on the west side of the Capitol overrun a very thin line of, I think there were five or six Capitol Police officers, they had no gear on them, kind of overran this police line with several other people, and then went up the steps and, and towards the Capitol building. Right before Ryan Samsel did that, Ray Epps is seen whispering in his ear. And so he also has not been charged. Why not? If he was clearly instigating people for activity that day, if he was on Capitol grounds that day, why has he not been questioned? Why has he not been charged with anything? So there's also suspicion that he is somehow working with the FBI as well. I've seen video from the night before January 6th in which uh, Ray Epps was exhorting people, look, we got to get into the Capitol tomorrow. And people start yelling at him, fed, 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 like, (laughs) like we're on to you. Um, and I've seen a new video that just uh, dropped on YouTube just a few days ago. I sent it to you on a a DM on Twitter. You probably haven't had a chance to look at that a a few minutes ago that puts Ray Epps in the middle of a crowd that is pushing police. And Ray Epps is actually one of the people pushing police police and all the more reason to go, wait, why haven't you arrested this guy? I mean, he was, he was, I think on an FBI most wanted list, uh, related to January 6th early on. And then that's all been, uh, memory hold. And it's not like they don't know who he is or where he is. Right. That's right. And that was interesting timing. As soon as Darren Beatty started raising the issue of why Ray, uh, you know, about Ray Epps or potential FBI assets who have not been charged, suddenly his face disappeared from this very lengthy FBI most wanted list. I have not seen the video that you're referring to. I definitely will take a look at it. Um, But we're at the point now, Doc, where the people who haven't been charged are more interesting than the people who have been. Oh, yeah. And this includes, you know, Ray Epps would be one, Stuart Rose would be another, there were multiple people infiltrated in the Proud Boys that day who were wearing these neon, bright neon orange caps. And I wrote an article about that. You don't see them on the FBI most wanted list. And I don't see any of them who have been charged with, along with the almost 700 defendants now who face various offenses related to January 6th. So that's more interesting now. Who hasn't been charged versus who has been charged? We're speaking with Julie Kelly, who has written uh, a series of great articles about January 6th, about the political prisoners over at amgreatness.com. Julie, the liberal media often refers to the events of January 6th 
as a deadly insurrection. Who was actually killed that day at the Capitol? Um, So four people died that day. Ashley Babbitt, as you know, who was shot at almost point-blank range by the, uh, excuse me, Capitol Police Officer Lieutenant Michael Byrd. She was an unarmed female veteran uh, who posed no threat. Um, Two other men, Benjamin Phillips and Kevin Greeson, both died of cardiac events. There's a reporting about Kevin Greeson that suggests he died around 2 o'clock that day in reaction to one of these explosive devices being, that was being thrown into the crowd by police that day. So these are called flashbangs, also pepper or sting balls, which release rubber bullets into the crowd. This is what police were doing, attacking legitimately peaceful protesters. Um, Benjamin Phillips also, we're not sure exactly what happened to him. But Roseanne Boyland is another woman who died that day. And the medical examiner's office said that she died of a drug overdose. But um, what video and testimony court filing suggests is that she died as a result of police brutality, misconduct in a part of the Capitol building where there were D.C. Metro police beating protesters, dousing them with chemical spray, uh, kicking them using their batons and riot shields against them. You could see Roseanne Boyland's lifeless body laying outside of that tunnel. There's video to show it. She is then dragged through the building by unidentified police officers. Uh, Paramedics arrive, take her to a local hospital. She's officially declared dead at 6.09. So there are a lot of questions now Um, Her family, I believe, has hired an investigator to find out exactly what happened. But if we get access to surveillance video from inside this tunnel where Roseanne Boyland died outside of this tunnel, we will be able to see what officers did. And it's very likely that she died not of a drug overdose, but that she died as a direct result of what police officers were doing to Americans at the Capitol on January 6th. You, know, you talk about this video. Is this video that defense attorney Joseph McBride has been able to see, but that the feds refuse to allow the rest of us to see? That's exactly right. So as you know, there are 14,000 hours of surveillance video captured by security cameras uh, system on January 6th. The Department of Justice has declared, designated this trove of video as highly sensitive government material. It rests solely in the hands of DOJ and the Capitol Police. Any clip that is used as evidence in either a criminal complaint or, say, for a pretrial detention hearing, every clip is under protective order. So DOJ has been dragging their feet in discovery obligations, but as trials are being scheduled, you know, out into 2022, defense attorneys are finally getting a hold of this discovery. There's a three-hour slice of footage from inside this Lower West Terrace tunnel uh, where police were and some of the biggest brawls between police and protesters happened. So defense attorney McBride detailed in a motion on behalf of one of his clients who is incarcerated charged with attacking police officers, he saw this three-hour clip, and he describes it in detail in a filing. And what he describes is nothing short of criminal conduct 
by whoever the officers were. One is a supervisor with D.C. Metro Police Department. Criminal conduct by police. Nearly beating a woman, defenseless woman, to death. Hitting her repeatedly on top of her head and in her face with a metal stick and with, in one instance, with a man's own fist. So... We are, so Joe McBride is trying to get that protective order removed. Interestingly, Doc, 16 major news companies, including the Washington Post, CNN, ABC News, Wall Street Journal, uh, they've put together what's called the Press Coalition, and they are filing motions in court also to get this video unsealed. And so they have joined McBride in asking federal judge Thomas Hogan to remove the protective order so the public can see that three-hour uh, clip of video. If we do, I suspect Americans are going to be shocked and disgusted at what they see happened inside that tunnel. It is surprising that a whole bunch of mainstream liberal media organizations have joined saying, hey, let's, let's go ahead and you know uh, let the video out and let people see what happened. That, that was a, a big surprise. So what do Americans need to know about the people who have been arrested for participating in the January 6th protests and how they have been treated since their arrests? Um, so we have about 700 defendants so far. The FBI is arresting people every week. I think they're trying desperately to get to some benchmark, a thousand January 6th. Uh, insurrectionists arrested by the one-year anniversary. That's what I suspect. The overwhelming majority, however, have been charged with uh, misdemeanors, including parading inside the Capitol, which is one of my favorites. Um, most people would think parading or picketing inside the Capitol building is a First Amendment protected right, but that does not apply to Trump supporters on January 6th. Um, you do have Roughly 120 or so now, 130 charged with attacking police officers. There are certainly people who deserve to have that charge applied to them. Um, you can't attack a police officer unprovoked. That's nothing that anyone would support. But uh, in more, in most cases, that's not what happened. Um, and so, and then you've got about 70 or so charges of weapons, various weapons possession or use. But the rule of law, due process, easy trial, right to, uh, to build your own defense, access to your defense attorney, all of these rights are being completely subverted, not only by federal prosecutors, but federal judges in Washington, D.C. The Justice Department has requested what's called pretrial detention, which means a defendant is denied bail. You're not even offer the opportunity for your family to get you out of jail. They've been denied bail based on the fact that they protested Joe Biden's election on January 6th. They are being punished through this process. And outrageously, federal judges, D.C. district court judges, from Trump appointees all the way down to Reagan appointees, are playing along, denying bail based on the fact that they are dangerous to the community simply because they were involved in this unprecedented attack on the Capitol. Right now, we've got about 70 men being held 
uh, in pretrial detention orders, about 40 of them are in the CC jail, specifically used to house January 6th defendants. It is a political prison in the United States. That is the only legitimate way to describe it. Uh, you, have you have people in charge of that jail who are known uh, haters of Donald Trump and his supporters. These men have been subjected to all kinds of various uh, uh, levels of abuse some physical abuse, certainly mental, emotional abuse. And at the same time, judges continue delaying their trials into the middle of next year while holding these men in pretrial detention. It is, it is a disgrace. I'm telling you, Doc, the Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, from judges to prosecutors to Congress to your local bureaucrat, federal or, or local bureaucrat, the mayor, the police department, they are solidly aligned and have declared war against half of this country. This is all playing out in what's happening on January 6th. It is, it is nauseating to listen to these court hearings and hear what prosecutors and judges are saying. Um, this just should not be happening in America. They're open contempt the gratification that they take in seeing average Americans suffer uh, in their ability to punish them, to go outside of the normal rule of law, to apply certain uh, punishments to protesters that never happened, say, to anyone who <laughs> burned down cities, attacked police officers, killed people, destroyed private property, and federal property, by the way, throughout 2020, none of this sort of thing is happening to them. Yet it has happened to even nonviolent protesters, people charged with no violent crime, weapons, uh, possession, anything of that nature, still being denied bail as their uh, trial dates drag out into the middle of next year and even later. We're speaking with Julie Kelly from American Greatness, amgreatness.com. You mentioned um, some of these political prisoners have been abused. There are actually allegations that uh, some of them have been beaten by guards, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Um, Ryan Samsell, the man I talked about who first officially breached whatever they call the restricted area far outside of the Capitol building, uh, he's been beaten twice by prison guards uh, and needed medical attention. Um, you have another man, Christopher Worrell, who was arrested in March, and he was in the D.C. jail for months until a federal judge finally released him because he is a stage three cancer patient who had been repeatedly denied care for a broken hand. He fell and broke his hand, a broken hand as well as his uh, cancer. He needed immediate radiation and chemotherapy. The D.C. Uh, Department of Corrections officials continued to deny him. So a judge finally released him out of that jail. Another man was subjected to an invasive, really of a sexual nature, strip search after meeting with his own defense attorney. And the details of that strip search were so egregious that a judge who, Trump appointee, by the way, who has played along with this whole political prison and whatever federal prosecutors want, uh, what happened to him was so bad, he also moved him out of the D.C. jail. Uh, and so they are, there's all sorts of different levels, as I said, degrees of abuse. Um, they can't see their lawyers. 
uh, if in person, if they do, they have to go into some sort of quarantine. But the vaccine is being pushed on them. They are denied a religious service. They are denied even access to personal grooming, like shaving and haircuts. So um, it's and I'm grateful to people like Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is really focused in on what's happening at this jail. Uh, she is going to, she has called out the deputy warden, who she found her social media account, and it is filled with hateful posts about Donald Trump and Republicans. And so, um, but what, what's really galling, Doc, is so many Republican leaders in Congress remain silent on this. And I'm just not so sure that they're going to be able to get away with this during the midterm election and campaigns, because the base rank and file is very aware of this abusive investigation and treatment of defendants. And I just don't think that once they get out on the campaign trail that these representatives are going to be able to ignore what's happening in the nation's capital uh, against Trump supporters. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about that. Um, recently, Marjorie Taylor Greene, U.S. Representative from Georgia, Matt Gates, U.S. Representative from Northwest Florida, Louis Gohmert, U.S. Representative from Texas, and Paul Gosar, U.S. Representative from Arizona had a press conference about how horribly uh, these January 6th political detainees are being treated. And God bless all four of them for doing that. God bless Marjorie Taylor Greene for uh, releasing a report about what she and uh, Louis Gohmert discovered mm -hmm. when he finally got to tour the jail. But is anyone else in Congress talking about this? No, I mean, just the handful that you mentioned. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Louis Gomer, Matt Gass, um, Andy Biggs, really roughly a dozen, I mean, maybe 10. They are the only ones who have been speaking out against this. I just don't understand why we don't have more Republican congressmen, but certainly the leaders of the Republican Party. But you know what's interesting, Doc? Now you see people like maybe Kevin McCarthy speaking out about the abusive January 6th committee and going after people like Mark Meadows and reading their text level. What yeah. do you think has been happening to regular Americans for the past 11 months? The FBI's raided people's homes at 5.30 in the morning with dozens of armed guards aiming guns at children, handcuffing people, hauling them off without showing them a warrant or allowing their attorney to be present during interrogation. I mean, these people's lives are being destroyed, families torn apart. They're being bankrupted. They're being uh, misrepresented by public defenders because they can't afford the six-figure more than six-figure fee to hire a criminal defense attorney in D.C. And this Republican leadership, I don't even want to call it leadership, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, who said nothing about this, they need to lose their positions of authority, uh, especially if Republicans take over the House and the Senate. Neither one should be retained as leader. We need leaders who are going to fight for the American people of both sides when this happens, but particularly the war on terror that the Biden regime has launched against Americans on the political right. We cannot allow Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell to be in charge of either chamber because they will not be willing to retaliate, to end what is happening, and to do exactly what the Democrats are doing to us. And so we need people who are feisty, who are fighters, 
who understand what's at stake and who will do whatever they can to stop the Democrats from getting away with this. You know, one of the things that's been shocking to me, um, you know, Republicans in the Senate, people who tend to stand up for our Constitution, for our constitutional rights, people like uh, Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and, and Josh Hawley and, and Ron Johnson and Mike Lee, and I haven't heard any of them say anything about these political prisoners. No, they haven't said a word. Um, I, the only person who really, in the Senate side, who has said anything is uh, Ron Johnson. Oh, Ron Johnson no, has. I apologize. And um, No, he did. And then they did write a letter to Mayor Garland, I think, in June or July, asking for explanations between the discrepancies of how social justice protesters of 2020 were being handled versus January 6th. And he got, that was signed on by, I think, four other senators. Um, Ted Cruz, um, Tommy Tuberville, Rick Scott, and I can't recall the other one. But okay. that's it. Uh, otherwise, they are, and I'm sure they didn't get a response. Right. Nobody cares. Right. Because these people are considered deplorables. They, even their own Republican representatives, consider them subhuman, not entitled to every other constitutional human civil right that applies to anyone else. Um, these people have been completely betrayed by their own Republican leadership. And I will say, too, Donald Trump hasn't said a lot either. And he's in a position where he can and his people around him. And he's made a few remarks about the jail. He certainly has talked about Ashley Babbitt. Otherwise, we haven't heard from him either. And, the, and I'll tell you what. The defendants are very dismayed by that because a lot of them tell me we went there because Donald Trump told us to go. They yeah. told it, he told us to come to the rally. He instructed us to go to the Capitol. And they got set up. They were entrapped. They were provoked by police, infiltrated by the FBI. Some of them did bad things on their own. There's no question about that. Yeah. But I'm talking overall. And Donald Trump has said very little to help them. Um, and that that's dismaying as well. I would think that if uh, Donald Trump would plead their case and set up a uh, legal defense fund, uh, that things would be going quite differently for the, for these people. Yes, the only legal defense fund or help to this family has been set up by um, a mom in New Jersey whose adopted nephew has been in the D.C. jail since February, and she set this up basically on her own. Uh, and I've helped to raise money for it. She's raising money on her own. Conservative, some conservative influences, influencers have had her on to try to explain what's going on and get donations. But the establishment conservative movement, the power brokers in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else, they are, they've been nowhere, nowhere to be found. Um, and so, you know, kudos to her and to the handful of people who have stepped up. Dinesh D'Souza and his wife donated $100,000 to this cause, uh, finally in a position to replace some of these terrible public defenders with real attorneys who want to help now after seeing what's been going on the past year. So there is some progress on that front, but we need a lot more. Could you tell me her name? Because we like to get her on the show uh, before too long. I'd love to, and I can connect you. Her name is Cynthia Hughes, and the um, the fund is called the Patriot Fund. Freedom Project, so it's PatriotFreedomProject.com. Patriot Freedom Project. Okay, um, I know you agreed to be on with us for, for a half hour. Could I, 
Could could I prevail upon you? Maybe just a couple more questions. Sure, of course. Okay, I, I appreciate your patience with us. Um, well, you're on. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? There's a lot to cover. Yes, ma'am. You're on Twitter this morning talking about Tom Webster. Could you please tell my listeners who he is and what's going on with him? Um, so this is part of what I've been covering, which is the police misconduct on January 6th. Um, recently, the DOJ asked the court in the case, in the trial of one of the earliest defendants, this trial will happen in February, the government is asking the court to prevent this man from claiming self-defense in the face of excessive force as reason for what he did that day. Um, so what's interesting is why would the Justice Department preemptively tell a defendant how he's not supposed to defend himself? So that is pending before the court right now. But Tom Webster is a separate case. Tom Webster is a 20-year veteran of NYPD. He served uh, security detail for Gracie's Mansion, and he's a former Marine, no criminal record, of course. He was charged with assaulting police officers, and his trial is in April. What Thomas Webster now is saying, he will claim self-defense of himself and others uh, in the case of excessive unlawful force by D.C. police officers. And what he is requesting is the release, and he said he will use about 10 or 12 minutes of body-worn camera footage from this particular D.C. police officer who he confronted and then had a physical altercation with. They, want, they are going to show the 12 minutes of body-worn camera footage from this cop who is accused of punching and pushing protesters, including women, um, and this is what provoked Thomas Webster to confront this cop. He called him a commie mf'er. He said, how dare you attack Americans? Uh, he challenged him to take, he was in head to toe, as many of them were riot gear. You couldn't see their face. You couldn't see any badge numbers. You couldn't identify these cops at all. So you had these stormtroopers, basically, Muriel Bowser stormtroopers there with, with weapons. Uh, to be used against protesters, and that's what Thomas Webster, as a, as a police officer, saw. You basically had this cop versus cop situation, and now this police officer is telling the court he is going to explain what he saw and use self-defense and defense of others against excessive unlawful force on January 6th to defend himself in trial in April. This is very interesting development. This is what the Justice Department do obviously, and the Biden regime and the media, for the most part, and police departments do not want the American people to see because it will completely crush the narrative. The Trump supporters went there armed with weapons, and they started assaulting cops. That is just simply not what happened. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I hope the judge rules in his favor and doesn't rule in favor of the DOJ, which does not want to allow him to defend himself in court. Um, mm -hmm. So you got this January 6th uh, sham commission going on in the U.S. House. Uh, Liz Cheney refers to herself as the ranking member, which is, is not true because she certainly wasn't appointed by Republican House leadership. Um, 
you've you've had some thoughts about Liz Cheney and the January sixth commission on on uh, on Twitter. Uh, could you uh, let my listeners, some of whom are not like us, some of whom are not on Twitter, uh, know what you think is going on with that commission? Well, the January sixth Select Committee is really just the political arm of what's happening with the Justice Department related to the January 6th defendants, just punishing average Americans for what they did. So to your point, Liz Cheney was not appointed by uh, Kevin McCarthy, and I believe per the statute, per the the organizing uh, legislation, um, that McCarthy was supposed to appoint five committee members, which of course he did, um, and Pelosi and Benny Thompson, who's the head of that committee, objected to his appointment of Jim Jordan, Representative Jim Banks, and others. So she they rejected McCarthy's appointments. Actually, rejected Jim Jordan and Jim Banks. To which Kevin McCarthy responded, "Well, then I'm pulling all five of our members. That was fine." And then um, Pelosi appointed Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two well-known uh, Trump haters to sit on that committee and pretend that they are Republican, they represent Republicans in Congress. So Liz Cheney uh, is the vice chair of the committee. She is using this to restore her family name on the left, who, as you recall, you know, 15, 10 years ago, they considered the Cheney's war criminals and wanted them strong up at the Hague. Now, all of a sudden, she is the conscience of the Republican Party, according to Democrats. So she's, uh, you know, retaliating against Donald Trump and Republicans. And that is basically her role as the useful idiot, useful idiot tool instrument of the Democratic Party. Um, And so, of course, she was there this week reading texts, allegedly texts that Mark Meadows received and sent on January 6th. Um, They're collecting this information from people and leaking it out as quickly as they possibly can to further uh, enhance their narrative and, and, you know, damage everyone else's reputation. So that's Liz Cheney. She is a lightweight. Uh, she's a fraud. She's obviously not a good person for what she is doing. And again, shame on Kevin McCarthy for even putting her in a position of power. She lost, you know, she lost that position, but now here she is emboldened as ever uh, at trying to tear down anyone in Trump's orbit. And Donald Trump, of course. And it's remarkable that the texts she's reading um, basically cut the legs out from under the idea there was any kind of uh, uh, organized uh, uh, insurrection, organized attempted coup or anything like that. You've you got Mark Meadows uh, sending and receiving texts, hoping that President Trump will say, hey, everybody calm down, everybody go home, as opposed to the opposite that uh, Democrats have been trying to get out there. That's right, right. So to the extent that that is illuminating that you had people texting Mark Meadows urging some response from Trump, which, of course, he did. He sent a tweet out, you know, we respect law enforcement. We don't want any violence. He gave his video response later. Uh, But it doesn't matter. You know this. I mean, they're going to frame this however they want to. Um, So it's, it's just all in service. To, to damage Trump and, and Mark Meadows and further. But look, what's happening with this committee is really unprecedented. And we can only hope when Republicans take the House 
and do not have the leadership of Kevin McCarthy, that they will form 10 of these committees and look into everything from the Russiagate hoax to the attempted character assassination of Brett Kavanaugh, the people who lied in congressional testimony, uh, who still have not been charged, certainly the events of January 6th, who was involved, how the FBI was involved, get the police out there to explain what they did, whose marching orders they were taking. Um, you know, we could have a lot of select committees to do exactly what Benny Thompson, Liz Cheney, Adam Schiff are doing right now. Whether we'll have the leadership or the guts to do that still remains to be seen. But they have now set a precedent that Republicans need to follow. Uh, we cannot, there's no need to be, quote unquote, better than this. We need to do the exact same thing that the Democrats and this administration, this Biden White House is doing to people on the other side. Absolutely. Julie Kelly, American Greatness. The website is amgreatness.com. Thank you so much for uh, sometimes seeming like the, the lone voice crying in the wilderness um, about what's being do- what is being done to these uh, political prisoners who are kept in jail without bail simply on the basis that they, believe, they agree with uh, uh, Donald Trump and they agree with millions of us that the election was stolen. And, and that is what Justice Department prosecutors uh, claim and judges agree uh, makes them dangerous and uh, makes it so they should not be allowed bail even though their trials are not going to go on until sometime next year. If it weren't for you, most of us would not even be aware of this. Well, thank you so much for covering it and for sharing my tweets and following this. Uh, It's really important, of course, that people know um, what's happening and they're going to learn a lot more and they are going to be shocked and disgusted um, next year as more information, video, testimony, et cetera, comes out. Amen. All right. Thank you so much. Julie Kelly, American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Thank you for coming on the Doc Washburn Show. Uh, God bless you and, uh, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Doc. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. There it is. There it is. Uh, these, are, uh, these are trying times. These are trying times. But uh, we have to speak up for our fellow man. You know? We have to speak up. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. The people in charge of our government, the people in charge of our regime, the people in charge of the uh, Washington, D.C. jail where these people are being held, the judges who keep them there and don't allow them bail clearly, clearly don't believe and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They clearly don't believe in that. All right, um, that having been said, that having been said, I, I need to, you know, speaking of government overreach, speaking of uh, the government putting its uh, uh, boot on our neck, as, as it were, I'm old enough to remember Nancy Pelosi saying you got to pass Obamacare to find out what's in it. So the question is, did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? 
do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you need to get a hold of my friend, Art Wilborn. He's got a website called myfamilyhealthplan.com. When you go to myfamilyhealthplan.com, the first thing you see is the big, bold words, affordable plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums. Personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. And then the button that says schedule call now. You click on that button. You get a free consultation with Art Wilborn at myfamilyhealthplan.com. And Art, make sure there are no gaps in your coverage. And Art, make sure you get an insurance plan that won't insult your morality. You don't wind up having to cover abortion and stuff like that that might be involved in Obamacare. Affordable plans, say 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no co-pays. Art is hearing from people all over the country going, hey, 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 I, I want to get in on that. Good. Do it. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You will be glad that you did. All right. <clears throat> I guess we have reached that time in the Doc Washburn show. Yeah, I think so. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by... Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. The auto dealership that believes in freedom. Your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. Online. And they'll drive it to your front door. RedRiverYourWay.com. Big old car dealership. It was smack dab in the middle of the USA. Selling cars, trucks, vans, Cars, trucks, vans, SUVs to, to folks all over the country. Now, this tweet of the day is kind of a series of tweets. Kind of a series of tweets. Uh, you may be you may be aware of a guy named Elon Musk. He's like a billionaire. Right, and he's been named uh, Times Person of the Year, Time Magazine. Elizabeth Warren, we used to call her Pocahontas, like fake Pocahontas, because she lied about being a Native American all those years. Elizabeth Warren, in response to Time Magazine, naming Elon Musk their person of the year, Elizabeth Warren said, let's change the rigged tax code so the person of the year will actually pay taxes and stop freeloading off everyone else. And so Elon Musk responded to her. First he said, so, so Elon Musk's tweets are like the tweet of the day. First he said, and if you opened your eyes for two seconds, you would realize I will pay more taxes than any American in history this year. And then he says, don't spend it all at once. Oh, wait, you did already. 
right? And then he also said about her, Elizabeth Warren saying, stop freeloading off everyone else. She said, stop projecting. (laughs) He said, you remind me of when I was a kid and my friend's angry mom would just randomly yell at everyone for no reason. And then he says, please don't call the manager on me, Senator Karen. (laughs) Man, 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 man. Elon Musk going off on Senator fake Native American Liz Warren. Some pretty good stuff right there. And if I may, There was a response, which was just fantastic. Somebody over on Twitter calls himself Real Safe Spaces. He says, it's incredible how sense cancels nonsense when delivered with confidence. Oh, we rhyming today. It's incredible how sense cancels nonsense when delivered with confidence. Yes. So thank you. Red River Your Way for sponsoring today's tweet of the day. Red River Your Way when you buy the car, truck, van, or SUV online and they'll drive it to your front door. Phenomenal. Just phenomenal. All right. That having been said, This new article out from the Federalist.com, Schiff doctored January 6th texts between Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan and the great Julie Kelly, who we spoke to moments ago, posted the article on Twitter and said, the House was under Republican control in 2017 and 2018. Everyone knew Adam Schiff was a low-life liar using Clinton DNC political dirt as evidence of phony election collusion. But instead of censoring him, Republican-led U.S. House opened an ethics probe into Devin Nunes, who, of course, is squeaky clean. So Sean Davis, over the Federalist, has the article on Adam Schiff in the Federalist.com today. He said, oops, he did it again. After leaking fake Donald Trump Jr. emails, fabricating the transcript of a 2019 phone call between former President Trump and Ukraine's president, and lying about his interactions with the so-called whistleblower behind House Democrats' first impeachment of Trump, U.S. Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat California, is now running the same con against a fellow lawmaker. During a hearing Monday night on the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, Adam Schiff claimed to have proof that a member of Congress texted former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to instruct former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. 
Not only did Schiff misrepresent the substance of the text message and its source, he even doctored original text messages, which were obtained and reviewed by the Federalist in their entirety. Referring to Mark Meadows, Adam Schiff said, quoting now, I want to display just a few of the messages he received from people in Congress. The committee is not naming these lawmakers at the time as our investigation is ongoing. If we could cue the first graphic, unquote. So the following graphic purportedly of the text message between a member of Congress and Meadows then appeared on screen at Adam Schiff's direction. Schiff continued, this one reads, on January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all. Schiff continued, you can see why, why this is so critical to ask Mr. Meadows about, about a lawmaker suggesting that the former vice president simply throw out votes that he unilaterally deems unconstitutional in order to overturn the presidential election and subvert the will of the American people, unquote. Okay, not only did Schiff lie about the substance of the text message and its source, he even doctored the message and graphic that he displayed on screen during his statement. The full text message, which was forwarded to Meadows from Representative Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio, on the evening of Monday, January 5th, was significantly longer than what Schiff read and put on screen, but Schiff erased significant portions of the text and added punctuation where there was none to give the impression that Jordan himself was tersely directing Meadows to give orders to Pence on how to handle the electoral vote certification. The original text was written by Washington attorney and former Department of Defense Inspector General Joseph Schmitz and included an attachment of a four-page draft Word document drafted by Schmitz that detailed Schmitz's legal reasoning for suggesting that Pence had the constitutional authority to object to the certification of electoral votes submitted by a handful of states. The piece that Schmitz had sent to Jim Jordan was published at the website everylegal.vote the next day and even included the same discussion draft heading and timestamp on the document that Schmitz sent to Jim Jordan. Schmitz texted Jordan on the evening of January 5th, good luck tomorrow, including the Word document as an attachment. Schmitz then texted to Jim Jordan a three-page summary of his Word document, which Schiff sliced and diced and then attributed to Jim Jordan. Schmitz texted, quote, on January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as President of the Senate, should call out the electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional, has no electoral votes at all, in accordance with guidance from founding father Alexander Hamilton and judicial precedence, unquote. In his graphic, Adam Schiff erased the final clause, and the EM dash preceding it, and added a period to the first clause without disclosing that he or his staff had chopped up the message and created a fake graphic misrepresenting the actual contents of the text message. Schmitz continued, quote, No legislative act, wrote Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 78, contrary to the Constitution can be valid. The court in Hubbard versus Lowe reinforced this truth when they said, 
that and, a, and that an unconstitutional statute is not a law at all is a proposition no longer open to discussion, unquote. Schmitz also wrote, following this rationale, an unconstitutionally appointed elector, like an unconstitutionally enacted, sta- enacted statute, is no elector at all, unquote. In his statement, an on-screen graphic, Adam Schiff erased the final two paragraphs and the final clause of the first paragraph of the text message before inserting punctuation that was never there, all without disclosing what he was doing. The graphic displayed by Adam Schiff, which was doctored to look like an exact screenshot, was similarly doctored as it contained content that was never in the original message and eliminated content that was. Jim Jordan's spokesman, Russell Dye, asked, Is anyone surprised that Adam Schiff is again rifling through private text messages and cherry-picking information to fit his partisan narrative and so so misinformation? According to a source familiar with the matter, Adam Schiff never approached Jim Jordan to discuss the text messages prior to chopping them up and misrepresenting them during Monday night's hearing. Had he done so or bothered asking Jim Jordan about the text message, Adam Schiff would have known that Jim Jordan was merely relaying to Meadows without comment an attorney's summary of that attorney's own legal argument as to what Mike Pence should or shouldn't do. Multiple sources who rarely communicate with Jim Jordan also scoffed at the idea that Jordan, who's known for writing only brief one or two word texts, if at all, would sit down and type out a multi-paragraph narrative with precise legal citations akin to a lengthy court brief. One individual who regularly talks to Jim Jordan told the Federalist, quote, the idea that Jordan would sit down and punch out a long-winded legal argument via text is absurd. That's just not how he works. One Republican colleague of Jim Jordan laughed out loud when asked by the Federalist if Jim Jordan was known for sending lengthy texts. That colleague said, if he texts at all, it's usually something like yes or call me. Another Republican lawmaker echoed those sentiments about Jim Jordan's tech Text habits. Lawmaker close to Jordan told the Federalist, quote, that's just not Jim's style. Long, nerdy paragraphs might be my style, but that's not Jim's style at all. The lawmaker noted, plus you have to remember what was going on at that time. People were sending around these law review articles and debates left and right because we had an interest in learning the facts and getting them right. And if it's somehow seditious in this country to debate or share a law review article on Alexander Hamilton's view on things, that's not really a country I want, to, I want to be a part of anymore. Adam Schiff and his team have a long history of doctoring and fabricating evidence to show their political enemies in the worst possible light while Trump Jr. was testifying during a 2017 congressional hearing on the Russian collusion hoax. Adam Schiff's committee leaked to CNN and NBC emails purportedly from Trump Jr. that showed he had communicated with someone about hacked WikiLeaks documents prior to their public release. In reality, despite each network claiming it had verified the claims about the emails, CNN even falsely claimed that Trump Jr.'s own uh, own attorney had verified the network's reporting. Each network actually botched the dates on the document. Rather than prove that the president's oldest son had been privately colluding with WikiLeaks about documents the organization had illegally obtained, the real emails, not those doctored by Adam Schiff or his committee, showed only that a random person with no connection to Trump Jr. had found his email address and sent the information to him 
after the documents were already publicly available. During 2019 impeachment hearings against Trump, Adam Schiff went back to that same playbook and doctored a transcript of a telephone call between Trump and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. After getting skewered for fabricating the transcript of a phone conversation between two world leaders, Adam Schiff later claimed without evidence that his version of the call was only meant to be a parody rather than a verbatim account of the phone call. Man, man, man. Adam Schiff also lied about his interactions with the so-called whistleblower whose leak of the phone call between Trump and Zelensky was used by House Democrats as a pretext for impeaching Trump and overturning the 2016 election results. Coincidentally, Adam Schiff's lie came in response to a question during a November 2019 hearing from Jim Jordan about interaction between Schiff and his staff and the so-called whistleblower. Adam Schiff lectured, First, as the gentleman knows, that's a false statement. I do not know the identity of the whistleblower. However... According to a report from the New York Times, the so-called whistleblower personally contacted Adam Schiff's office before the so-called whistleblower ever even filed his complaint against Donald Trump with the inspector general that is supposed to oversee the country's federal spy agencies. New York Times headline noted, Schiff, House Intel chairman, got early account of whistleblower's accusations. Adam Schiff's office, of course, did not respond to mutual pardon me, to multiple, multiple requests for comment about the doctored text messages from Jim Jordan. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. If Republicans retake the U.S. House next November, then come January 2023, they got to kick this guy out. Um, why wouldn't, why wouldn't Republicans do that? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. It'd be a first. It'd be a first. Because ordinarily Republicans want to play by the Marquis de Queensberry rules and don't get down in the gutter with the, uh, with the Democrats. Uh, well, they should. Because the Democrats break all the rules, they play dirty, and our side acts like, well, we're, we're above it. You know? And uh, just, just, just let them do whatever. And that's, that's messed up. My humble opinion, and you're entitled to it. But I, I felt like I, uh, I owed you that. Now, we spoke about Marjorie Taylor Greene, U.S. Congresswoman from uh, from Georgia, earlier in my interview with uh, the great Julie Kelly. Well, Marjorie, Green, if Marjorie Taylor Greene has some thoughts about Adam Schiff. She is on Twitter this morning saying, we must remove Adam Schiff from Congress 
It's not enough to take him off committees. He has heinously, or heinously, pardon me, he has heinously abused power and lied repeatedly to the American people to weaponize the government to attack his political enemies. He's a communist. All communists must be expelled. Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger must be kicked out of the House GOP conference. They're actively participating in a huge lying witch hunt and engaged in an effort aligned with communist Democrats, violating the House of Representatives' very institution to attack Republicans, letting Cheney and Kinzinger off the hook as they slip away out of office by quitting a defeat in 2022 is not enough. Certainly isn't. She says they should be made as examples to all Republicans to never join the liars and the communists abusing the power of Congress and violating our Constitution. You know, folks are talking about, well, when we take uh, back the House, it looks like, of course, the minority leader will become the speaker, uh, Kevin McCarthy. No, 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 no. Somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene should be the speaker. Know what I'm saying? Um, somebody who's going to fight. Something Kevin McCarthy rarely shows much interest in. So, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe he gets, uh, maybe he gets bad advice from his landlord. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy rents a uh, penthouse apartment from a guy named Frank Luntz. Uh, Frank Luntz is uh, he's a liberal pollster who always gives Republicans bad advice. Just so you know. Now, Jake Tapper over at CNN had Senator Amy Klobuchar on recently. And Jake Tapper was slamming Ted Cruz for speaking with Senator Klobuchar without wearing a mask. Of course, Jake Tapper is sitting about a foot away from Amy Klobuchar, and neither one of them is wearing a mask. Of course, there's a picture out this morning Ted Cruz put out of Biden talking to Amy Klobuchar without wearing a mask. Real close, real close. So Ted Cruz on Twitter says, Hey, Jake Tapper, are you going to ask Joe Biden why he was, as you put it, recklessly endangering Amy's life? And will you be wearing a mask when you ask it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I like. That's what I like. Judicial Watch out uh, first thing this morning. They received multiple audio, visual, and photo records from the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department about the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt on January 6, 2021 in the U.S. Capitol building. So you might want to check out judicialwatch.org for that. You know, if you saw the only interview done with the guy that murdered her, Lieutenant Michael Byrd, done by Lester Holt, on NBC. Um, 
very softball interview. Lester Holt, a friendly interviewer. You saw how nervous Michael Byrd was anyway. You saw his body language, his eyes going furiously back left to right. You saw the behavior of a man who knows he did something wrong. For what it's worth. For what it's worth. So quoting Julie Kelly again about Liz Cheney, she said, we need to see Liz Cheney's texts. What did she know ahead of time about the inside job that was January 6th? For example, why did she arrange for her own security that day? Huh. Yeah, let's take a look at what Washington Post says. Representative Liz Cheney also anticipated the potential for danger. The congresswoman from Wyoming had emerged as the de facto leader of anti-Trump Republicans and believed the campaign to stop the steal was not merely violating the Constitution but fomenting violence. As the number three in House Republican leadership, she did not receive around-the-clock security detail from the U.S. Capitol Police, so Cheney arranged for her own protection. A former Secret Service agent greeted Cheney that morning to escort her to and from the Capitol. Cheney took to Twitter at 7.11 a.m. to denounce the effort by a growing number of her Republican colleagues to try to give Trump a second term by rejecting the Electoral College results. And there's more. Around noon at the Capitol, again, Washington Post. Around noon at the Capitol, Representative Liz Cheney headed into the GOP cloakroom and anteroom just off the chamber floor where members gathered to relax. Inside along the wall sat tables with stacks of paper on them. Republican members lined up to sign the sheets. Cheney poked her head around to see what they were signing. They were registering as co-sponsors to contest Biden's victory in six key states. Only one House member and one senator needed to sign to prompt the chambers to split apart and debate the merits of each contested state. Still, many Republicans wanted to have proof that they su supported these contests, so dozens upon dozens signed their names. Huh. Here's more. Cheney's phone rang. It was her father, former Vice President Richard B. Cheney, who had been watching Trump invoke her by name. Now he feared for Liz's safety. They discussed whether she should tone down the remarks she planned to deliver in support of Biden's victory. Her father asked, should it affect what you're going to do? After some discussion, they agreed she should press on. He told his daughter, you can't let that sort of threat stop you from doing what's right. Threat? Threat? Yeah, what did, uh, what did Liz Cheney know and when did she know it? Now, again, just a reminder, just a reminder for... Um, I mean, the overwhelming majority of people listen to Doc Washburn's show every day are from outside the state I used to do local talk radio in, outside of Arkansas. But just a reminder 
for people listening in central Arkansas. Your U.S. representative, a guy named French Hill, declared after Liz Cheney voted to impeach Trump over nothing that he was proud to have voted to keep her in Republican House leadership because she's an outstanding conservative. That's what he said. And he does have a primary opponent, an actual conservative, a guy named Colonel Conrad Reynolds, who will be on the ballot, Republican primary, May 24th. So we can send French Hill home from Washington, D.C. Just so you know. Just so you know. Okay, on an unrelated note, what is this? Trialsitenews.com, fourth child died in Vietnam due to overreaction from Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccine. Recently, Trial Site News reported 120 children became ill from the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA-based COVID-19 vaccine, while at least three children died due to unfortunate responses to the vaccine. Now, news out of Vietnam raises more trouble as yet another child died after COVID-19 inoculation with BNT162B2. While still a rare event, the news is no less concerning. 15-year-old boy died representing the fourth pediatric death associated with the COVID-19 vaccine. The boy lived in Sun La, a northern province in the Southeast Asian nation. The boy resided with his family in the Thuan Chao district and received the first dose December 4th. All looked okay with no symptoms an hour after the vaccine's injection, reported Nguyen Hu Hung, deputy director of Sun La's health department, the VN Express, However, just a couple of days later, concerning symptoms serviced, including dizziness and nausea, the boy was taken to the local hospital and transferred to, transferred to Sun Law General Hospital, where he passed away days later. Four children have died due to the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And uh, it's just, uh, I mean, I don't understand why uh, people... I'm in such a hurry to get minor children vaccinated when they are statistically at hardly any risk at all. It just uh, just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, give me uh, just a moment here. I gotta gotta get a drink of water. Hang on, just a moment. Thanks for listening to the Doc Washburn Show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. Many of you have asked, how can we help support the show? Really easy. Go to DocWashburnShow.com and click Become a Patron at the top right corner of the website or click the Podbean logo where it says, Be My Patron on Podbean. We sure do appreciate your support of the Doc Washburn Show. Yes, we certainly do. We certainly do. So Dr. Robert Malone, Dr. Robert Malone, who invented the mRNA vaccines and RNA as a drug, 
He's got about a half a million followers out there on Twitter. It's, it's remarkable to me that they allow him to stay on Twitter. He's linking to another article from trialsitenews.com. And he says, while this author strives to remain as objective and unbiased as humanly possible, a thorough review of this one report suggests that the FDA and Pfizer have appeared to conceal the full extent of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine side effects from the public. If this assumption is in fact true, then the gold standard regulatory agency and the prestigious multinational pharmaceutical company have thrown the entire concept of informed consent out the window. Now, if you're listening to the Doc Washburn show and have listened for a while, uh, that's probably not going to surprise you. That's probably not going to surprise you. There's, there's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of money at stake. The great John Hayward over at Breitbart has a thread on Twitter this morning in which he says, of all the systems mankind has devised to allocate scarce resources, capitalism is by far the best at increasing supply in response to demand. The enforcers of every other ideology invest a great deal of effort into making people forget that simple, powerful truth. Politics, ideology, economics, in the end, it boils down to figuring out who gets how much because there will never be enough for everyone to have everything. Even if we had some magical technology that produced goods from thin air, our time would still be limited and valuable. The cold hard truth is that capitalism, private citizens owning capital and freely investing it to create profit, is the system most likely to increase the supply of scarce resources to meet demand. We have seen this demonstrated time and again since the Industrial Revolution. The reasons are not difficult to understand, Although, as mentioned, collectivist ideologues put a lot of effort into obscuring those reasons. Millions of free people seeking profit are always going to be better at developing resources than central planners and tyrants. Part of capitalism's superiority lies in the value lost through compulsion. Other systems must force people to develop resources. No matter how much velvet they lay over that iron fist, it never works as well as free people voluntarily pursuing their ambitions. Capitalism makes the entire population more conscious of value. They seek the best value for their money and investments. They demand it. Millions of people seeking value every day are more likely to find it than cloistered central planners and power-hungry politicians. What does a socialist do when demand outstrips supply? Well, he either forces greater production, inevitably screwing it up because socialists understand nothing about production, or he forcibly suppresses demand. 
He rations everything, making sure the elites get the good stuff. High demand for scarce goods and services is an opportunity for capitalists, but a crisis for socialists and communists. Generations have mocked the idea of chasing the almighty dollar and forgotten it's vastly preferable to running away from the almighty whip. You know that leftists are keenly aware of capitalism's absolute superiority because their favorite tactic is pretending they can conjure goods, services, and benefits out of thin air. They have no answer to the question, who pays for all this stuff, so they attack anyone who asks the question. A healthy capitalist system can sustain a very generous welfare program. It's far better to let capitalism generate wealth with all of its freedom and, and muscle and use a reasonable portion of that wealth to accountably help the unfortunate than to socialize misery. But we're now in the end game of a decades-long attack on capitalism whose objective is to sever the poor and middle class from capital entirely. Generations have been re-educated to think benefits and entitlements are preferable to owning and profiting from capital. Soon it will be all but impossible for anyone but the wealthy and the state to own capital and invest it for profit. We're approaching the point where only rich people can afford property or create business enterprises, which means only the rich can say no to the state. Preferring socialism to capitalism is choosing magic over science. You're surrendering control over your life and destiny to people who claim they can conjure free stuff out of thin air. The likely future will be the state saying no to you when you make demands it can't meet. Socialists understand so little about the creation of wealth that they think it is magic. They think their sorcery will be more fair, more just than the witchcraft capitalists keep using to accomplish what the left said was impossible, producing instead of rationing. You know, this reminds me of a book that I read by a guy who had just escaped Uganda to the UK in the late 70s. He had been in... Uh, the government of uh, the vicious, brutal, murderous dictator, Idi Amin Dada. And he explained that when Idi Amin kicked the Europeans out of Uganda and took over their businesses and appointed his henchmen, his thugs, to run these businesses, that Idi Amin was actually surprised that the businesses did not flourish. They did not uh, operate um, as well under his thugs, his henchmen, as they did under the European capitalists who had them before he stole them from them. He didn't understand why they weren't still running these businesses like well-oiled machines and producing profits. He didn't understand why 
goods and services became scarce. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Typical socialist. They don't get it. They don't understand it. So, um, <clears throat> there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Daily Wire has this. Virginia hospital found in contempt of court subject to $10,000 per day fines after denying patient ivermectin. Oh, really? Chris Davies and his father, Donald, have been fighting for their mother and wife, Kathy Davies' right to try the drug ivermectin as a COVID-19 treatment. At Fauquier Health Hospital in Warrington, Virginia, for the past few weeks, but the hospital where Chris happens to work as a radiologic technologist had put his mother through a series of legal hoops seemingly designed to block the treatment from being given to her. On Monday, Virginia's 20th Judicial Court found Fauquier Health in contempt of court after refusing to comply with previous orders and ruled that by 9 p.m. Eastern time Monday night, Kathy Davies must be given the dose of ivermectin as prescribed by a doctor retained by the Davies family. Additionally, if the hospital did not comply, the state had the right to fine the hospital $10,000 per day. That order would have been applied retroactively from December 9th onward. The court also ordered the Davies family be given police escort, if necessary, to administer the drug to their mother. But the court also said the hospital had an opportunity to purge the contempt charge by complying with the order. The hospital is reportedly now opting to comply with that order after a week of arguing they could not allow the drug to be given to Kathy Davies as the family requested. The story offers hope for legal respite for many families who have found themselves in similar situations while trying to battle a medical establishment arguably opposed to any treatment not supported by the FDA to fight the China virus. This is nuts, man. Why do hospitals want to kill people? That's what I want to know. I've asked it before. I ask again, why, um, why, why are hospitals so intent on killing folk? You know? It's tough. I don't care whether you're in Arkansas or somewhere else. It's tough finding a hospital in this day and age that's actually willing to give you treatment they know will save your life. They know will save your life. Now, speaking of life-saving treatment, I think I would probably be in a wheelchair by now if I hadn't run into a doctor who practice upper cervical care, upper cervical is your, uh, your atlas bone at the top of your spinal column. I was walking around in a daze, um, constant low-grade headaches and neck ache from having been in several Automobile accidents in the 20 years before that until I discovered this kind of care. Let, let me tell you, let me tell you how my wife was helped. 
well, she was my fiance at the time. We'd just gotten back from visiting family in Panama City, Florida. I got back to Little Rock, Arkansas. And on New Year's Eve, uh, she didn't answer her phone. I couldn't, I couldn't get a hold of her. New Year's Eve 2015. And I didn't know her adult children well enough to have their phone numbers, but I got a private message on Facebook that evening from her daughter who said that she'd woken up that morning, um, couldn't catch her breath, and that Jason's girlfriend had to throw her in the car and drive 80 miles an hour to get her to the ER Baptist. Baptist Medical Center in Little Rock probably saved her life. And she was in a medically induced coma. I'd never heard of that. I didn't know what that meant. Because you see, hear the word coma, you think somebody's about to die. Um, and she may have died if Smith hadn't gotten her to the ER at Baptist. But anyway, medically induced coma means, of course, that they put you under to try to stabilize you. And so she was in a hospital for nine days. She was in a medically induced coma for two and a half days. They told her she had COPD. Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disorder. I think that's what it stands for. Anyway, I have been telling her about upper cervical care, about getting your atlas adjusted. What that's all about is your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas bone, which only weighs 2 ounces. It's easy for that atlas bone to get out of alignment. If it does, then the rest of your spinal column can kind of get kinked up like a chain, which restricts restricts your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body the way God designed it to do. So it can affect anything from head to toe. So I finally talked her into visiting the doctor in central Arkansas who adjusts Atlas uh, Dr. J.R. Crabtree at the Arkansas Upper Circle Center, and she got her atlas adjusted. I mean, he takes the he takes the the X-rays first to see if your atlas needs to be adjusted. The X-rays of your of your uh, your head and and your and your neck. So after she got her atlas adjusted, we're walking out to the car, and she said, "Doc, this is crazy." The big toe on my left foot has felt numb and tingly for years. Now it feels normal. I'm like, good, good, good. That afternoon, I was doing my local radio talk show in Little Rock, Arkansas, and she texted me, hey, Doc, guess what? For the first time in, in years, I don't have my regular daily backache. I said, good. A few days later, she said, you know what? I haven't had a headache since I got my atlas adjusted, the Arkansas Surgical Center. I said, well, how often are you used to having headaches? She said, oh, every day, every day. So my wife... Peggy and I have been really, really, really helped by getting our atlas adjusted, and many people that we know have been really helped by that. Um, because when, you're, when your spinal column is kinked up like a chain and your central nervous system's abilities and impulses to the rest of your body is obstructed, it can affect your circulatory system, your respiratory system, your reproductive system, yes, even your digestive system. Now, if you're having some issues, whether it's migraines, 
back pain, neck pain, leg pain, vertigo, sinus issues, even eczema. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, you can call the Arkansas Cervical Center at 501-279-2009. If you're like most of our listeners, you're outside Arkansas, go to the website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on the tab that says find a doctor. So you can find a doctor close to where you live. Turnmypoweron.com. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. All right, that having been said, that having been said, I want to go back for just a second to this uh, January 6th sham committee hearing. We've got uh, U.S. Representative Jim McGovern out of Massachusetts. He said this. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I got to right-click and open it up in different things so it doesn't. Refresh on me. Here he is. The texts sent to Mark Meadows that were released by the select committee last night were nothing short of a bombshell. The top personalities on Fox News who are today trying to cover up the gravity of what happened on January 6th knew who to go to to stop the insurrection that day. The president's son knew who to go to. When Don Jr. texted that, quote, it has gone too far and gotten out of hand, end quote, What was it that he was referring to? The it was the attempt to overthrow the election. The it was the attempted coup in the United States of America. Yet the president did nothing in those critical moments in what the vice chair has rightly called his supreme dereliction of duty. So based on what we've already seen, I shudder to think what else Mr. Meadows is trying to hide. So, um, really good conservative talk show host out of Houston, a guy named Jesse Kelly said, hey, GOP, the appropriate response to this commission isn't to whine about it. The appropriate response is to set up a Russian collusion commission after the midterm elections, drag every Democrat before Congress, release all their private text messages, start hitting back Hard. All right? Yeah. That's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. And and, and by the way, just in case you're wondering, just in case you're wondering, the names of the 35 Republican knuckleheads that voted for the January 6th commission, Let me give them to you alphabetically, if I may. Don Bacon, Nebraska. Cliff Bentz, Oregon. Stephanie Bice, Oklahoma. Liz Cheney, Wyoming. John Curtis, Utah. Rodney Davis, Illinois. Brian Fitzpatrick, Pennsylvania. Jeff Fortenberry, Nebraska. Andrew Garbarino, New York. Carlos Jimenez, Florida. Tony Gonzalez, Texas. Anthony Gonzalez, Ohio. Michael Guest, Mississippi. Jamie Herrera, Butler, Washington. French Hill, Arkansas. Trey Hollingsworth, 
Indiana, Chris Jacobs, New York, Dusty Johnson, South Dakota, David Joyce, Ohio, John Katko, New York, Adam Kinzinger, Illinois, David McKinley, West Virginia, Pete Meyer, Michigan, M. Miller Meeks, Iowa, Blake Moore, Utah, Dan Newhouse, Washington, Tom Reed, New York, Tom Rice, South Carolina, Maria Salazar, Florida, Mike Simpson, Idaho, Chris Smith, New Jersey, Van Taylor, Texas, Fred Upton, Michigan, David Valadeo, California, and Steve Womack, Arkansas. All of them need to be primaried. They need to go. The idea that these 35 Republicans cooperated with Nancy Pelosi? No, they're, they're, they're rhinos in the worst kind of way. They need to go. I hope you'll remember this when the primaries roll around in the spring. It's outrageous. You know, um, Juanita Broderick, the great Juanita Broderick, who I've interviewed before in my local show, and we'll try to get her on the live stream slash podcast one of these days. She said, have you ever watched documentaries about tyranny and a dictator's rise to power? Then you get to the part where you think, why didn't the people do something? She says, that's where we are right now. That's where we are right now. Speaking of which, here's a little clip of uh, Biden from this morning. And so everybody talks about freedom and not to have a to have a shot or have a test. Well, guess what? And so how about patriotism? How about making sure that you're vaccinated so you do not spread the disease to anybody else? What about that? But they do. They do spread the disease. And I was going to say, and he knows it, but, you know, there's no telling what he knows. Because he's gone, man. He's mentally gone. We all know that. We all know that. Now, I find this interesting. Dick Morris. Remember him? He used to be a Clinton advisor. He has an op-ed at Newsmax today entitled Tucker Carlson's Putin play mirrors Hitler appeasement. Really, Dick Morris? Really, Newsmax? Let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this and see if uh, see if maybe Dick Morris is engaging a little bit of hyperbole here. He says, Fox News lead host Tucker Carlson is behaving like the discredited appeasers of Adolf Hitler in the prelude to World War II. Really? Newsmax, you allow this on your website. Really? No, no. Let, let's see what he has to say. He says, the lessons of 1930s appeasement is that it doesn't work, does not gain peace, and leads to even greater tragedy. Today, Carlson is making excuses for Russian strongman Vladimir Putin and his increasing threats against Ukraine. 
He says Carlson even makes the fantastical claim that NATO has tormented Putin. He implies the North, um, North Atlantic Alliance bears responsibility for a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. Really? Where, where's the quote, Dick? Where, where's the quote? He says, in a recent op-ed on Newsmax, former NATO Supreme Allied Commander General Wesley Clark took Tucker to task for his views, noting that, quote, one would think a Fox News host would applaud and champion the pro-American Ukrainians. Carlson has praised Putin before and said that for all his faults, he does not hate America, unquote. No, wait, 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 wait. Dick Morris over Newsmax, you're actually quoting General Wesley Clark, the guy that even Bill Clinton had to fire? Wesley Clark, who toured with the idea of running for president in 2004 as a Democrat against George W., this is the guy you're uh, quoting here? Putin? I mean, Morris? Wesley Clark, the guy who said that uh, service members at recruiting stations should not be allowed to be armed right after a Muslim jihadist shot one up in Tennessee a few years ago. That Wesley Clark, right? Wesley Clark who said, no, we should just trust Muslim families to uh, keep better track of their young men. He said that you would be violating posse comitatus if you allowed service members to carry firearms for their own protection at uh, recruiting stations in America. Tell you what, sure a lot of gall. Wesley Clark to be talking about posse comitatus. Wasn't he in charge of Fort Hood when the FBI got all that military hardware to kill all those kids at uh, the Branch Civilian Complex in, in Waco and and he wants to talk about posse comitatus? That Wesley Clark? That that's that's who Dick Morris is is quoting here? Wow. Dick Morris says Tucker Carlson's defense of Putin echoes the fame. Are you going to have a quote, Dick? You're claiming he said something, but you're not quoting him. He says, Carlson's defense of Putin echoes the famous comment of the British, of, of the Britain's great appeaser of the Nazis, Philip Kerr, the country's ambassador to the United States, later no, known as Lord Lothian. Lothian defended Hitler's march into the Rhineland in 1936, a blatant violation of the Treaty of Versailles. He said the move amounted to nothing more than the Germans marching into their own back garden. At the time, Lothian served as Britain's ambassador to the United States, and his defense of Hitler's actions did much to bolster the German position at the time. Okay, but what did Tucker Carlson say, Dick? What did... Dick Morris continues, Ukraine is not anybody's back garden. Certainly not Russia's. Okay, so then why are you comparing Tucker Carlson, whom you still haven't quoted, 
to this Hitler appeaser. He says it is the home to 44 million freedom-loving people who have suffered greatly to fight against Russian imperialism. Okay, right. Dick Morris says, in 2005, I worked as a consultant to Ukraine's orange revolution that overturned the fraudulent Russian-engineered election in Ukraine. The people of Ukraine rose up and put pro-Western Viktor Yushchenko in office as their president. The orange revolutionaries huddled and froze in Kiev's main square during months-long protests through a cold winter. This happened as Russia threatened to cut gas supplies for Ukraine unless it kowtowed to its puppet candidate. What people need to understand, which Tucker Carlson may not, is that Putin wants control over Ukraine to cement Russia's role as a great European power. Russia's population has dwindled to about 145 million, lower than when Putin came to power in 2000, and the country desperately wants to re-annex Ukraine to assert its continental role as a superpower. It also wants to rekindle its control over the so-called satellite nations of East Europe it dominated during the Soviet days. Russia's only access to these nations is through Poland and Ukraine. Poland has been admitted to NATO, posing a major problem for Russia. Now Ukraine is seeking such membership, and Carlson argues that its application is tormenting Putin. Where? Where does he argue that? Dick Morris says, so mark Tucker Carlson down as an appeaser in the most important battle for freedom now going on in the world. And you don't quote him. You don't quote him, Dick. You quote Wesley Clark, who probably should be in jail. If what people suppose about his role in the Waco massacre is correct. But you don't quote this guy that you're slamming, you're Tucker Carlson. Why is that, Dick? Unfreaking believable. It's just amazing to me. Now, a big, big hat tip to uh, opinion columnist and trial attorney Marina Medvin for coming up with some remarkable screenshots of how the liberal mainstream media is trying to deal with inflation, the worst inflation we've had in 39 years in this country. New York Times says how not to panic about inflation. Remember the lessons of the 2010-2011 scare. CNN Business says why inflation can actually be good for everyday Americans and bad for rich people. Allison Morrow, CNN Business. That's impossible. That's impossible. Inflation, I'm sure as you know, is a tax is a tax on low-income folks. I mean, you got to know that. How stupid can they be? Think anybody's going to fall for that? And over the intercept, uh, John Schwartz says inflation is good for you. Don't panic over milk prices. Inflation is bad for the 1%, but helps out almost everyone else. Exactly backwards, and they know it. 
So the question is, if they know they're lying and they know we know they're lying, why do they even bother? It's remarkable. I got to tell you, it's remarkable. The great Kurt Schlichter. The great Kurt Schlichter. Retired Army colonel and attorney. Says President Ron DeSantis must prosecute everyone who violated the rights of the January 6th political prisoners. Amen, brother. Amen, brother. Now, let me just mention something here. There are new numbers out for uh, daily new cases on the, the Rona, the, the China virus in Los Angeles and neighboring Orange County. So for about five months, Los Angeles has had mask mandates and imposed increasingly strict vaccine passports. Their neighbor, Orange County, hasn't, yet L.A.'s done worse the whole time than Orange County has. Amazingly, politicians and experts are still getting away with pretending mask mandates and vaccine passports work. Yeah. A lot of people not paying attention. Sure. It's exactly, exactly what's going on. Um, so Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney has sent out a fundraising letter and she says, having served as Wyoming's lone representative in the U S house for the past four plus years, I've always put my oath to the constitution first, but make no mistake. I'm a lifelong dedicated and committed conservative Republican, and I'll always fight for the traditional values we hold dear, like freedom, fiscal responsibility, and support for our military and law enforcement. She says, a strong America depends on an unwavering commitment to freedom, a formidable military, and always defending America's democracy and our security. The rule of law matters, the truth matters, and defending our republic so it can endure into the future matters. She sent this to a guy named Ron. She says, Ron is a stalwart conservative who reveres our Constitution, the rule of law, and transparency in government. I know that what happened on January 6th can never happen again, and we deserve answers about the events of that day so we can uphold the underpinnings of our democracy because of my determination to stand up for the truth, uphold my oath to the Constitution, put our country first. I'm being attacked politically. Elected leaders have an obligation to put our country before politics, and they must fight to preserve the freedom and principles that make our country exceptional, like preserving the peaceful transfer of power. She says, I love this country and the values we stand for. That is why what happened on that day is so disturbing. The most sacred space in our republic was besieged by an angry and violent mob attempting to stop the counting of electoral votes. Make no mistake, this was not some peaceful protest. This was an attack on our democracy, an attack on our Constitution, an attack on our country. She says, unfortunately, even in the face of what we now know, some are still continuing to perpetuate 
dangerous rhetoric, and outright lies. In response, like-minded conservatives must stand together strongly to ensure that our long-held values do not get cast aside for political expediency or soothed egos. We're bigger than that. We're better than that, she says. So Ron, who happens to be a guy named Ron Basilian, who is a op-ed columnist himself, responds to Ralph here on Twitter, and he says, uh, Hi, Liz Cheney. I'm honored to get a fundraising letter from you, and I'm happy to see you believe in the Constitution and the rule of law. But to clarify, do you believe that January 6th defendants are entitled to constitutional due process and a speedy public trial? Because that's... Uh, that's sure not what they're getting, right? That's definitely not what they're getting. You know, we we had the um, Dick Morris op-ed from Newsmax a little bit ago in which he was slandering Tucker Carlson while not even quoting him. And this brings us to uh, townhall.com. Spencer Brown article entitled, Why Did Newsmax Tell Staff to Go Easy on Biden? What? He says, What is going on at Newsmax? That's the question a lot of viewers and media watchers are asking. Amid a shakeup that's come with the news that White House correspondent Emerald Robinson's contract is not being renewed for 2022. There's been buzz that Emerald Robinson and Newsmax are splitting ways due to Robinson's tweets that got her banned from the social network. But according to an exclusive report from our sister site, Red State, there's a lot more going on at Newsmax. Oh, my goodness. He says, as Jen Van Lahr writes, Network Insiders told Red State Emerald Robinson's tweets were not at all the reason for the split, but that Robinson was out because she refused to obey Newsmax CEO Chris Ruddy's June 2021 directive to go easy on the Biden administration, particularly Jen Psaki. Woof. If the Newsmax insiders are correct that the network's CEO warned reporters to go easy on the Biden administration, it's no wonder Robinson's contract wasn't renewed. Emerald Robinson was known for taking members of the Biden administration, Press Secretary Jen Psaki especially, to task. As Red State reminds, Robinson's skirmishes with Psaki have made news throughout the year, and while both lefty and mainstream news sites have reported on them ad nauseum, insiders say Newsmax often didn't air them. And Chris Ruddy and other executives became increasingly frustrated at Robinson's insolence. The fact that Newsmax, a network that marketed itself as a further right alternative to Fox News, quietly told the reporters and talent to go easy on Joe Biden is not entirely surprising in light of CEO Ruddy's past praise for Joe Biden. Uh-oh. A July 2021 op-ed, Newsmax.com, said Biden should be applauded for making a huge dent in the COVID pandemic, and that Biden's success as president is all about covid not only with the vaccine, but also his push for ample and popular stimulus packages. What? How'd all that work out? 
Chris Ruddy's op-ed at Newsmax also lauded the fact that, quote, a recent clear, uh, a recent real clear politics average has him with a 52% job approval against a disapproval of 43%, a nine-point positive spread, unquote. An advantage that has completely evaporated as Biden failed to follow through on his promise to shut down the virus and wrecked America's economy in the meantime. Even more prematurely, Chris Ruddy noted of Biden that rightfully his White House has pushed back against calls for mandatory vaccinations. We all know how that turned out. Not only did Biden break his promise not to mandate vaccines, Chris Ruddy also pivoted and more or less botched a mandate for Newsmax employees. An email to Newsmax staff obtained by Mediate in early November notified employees they would have to be vaccinated by January 4th, 2022, and those who chose not to get vaccinated would have to get weekly testing and remain masked while in Newsmax offices. The all-staff email added, to ensure that we are in compliance, we require that all vaccinated employees submit a copy of their vaccination card. These incidents, along with many others detailed by redstate.com, brought Van Lahr to an easy con- conclusion. She said, obviously, Chris Ruddy isn't the true conservative many of his viewers believe he is. And that's a shame. That's a shame. Good grief. Good grief. That's... Uh, that's amazing. That's kind of a shock. Kind of a shock. Going back for just a second to the January 6th committee. Jack Posobiec, Human Events, says 24 hours later, and even the media has dropped the Mark Meadows text story once they realize it debunked the January 6th committee. Mark Meadows played you idiots. Then... Scott Adams, the guy that does the Dilbert comic strip, says, I can think of two good reasons the experts might tell the public that ivermectin doesn't work against COVID-19. The first good reason would be because it doesn't work. The second good reason would be because it does work. If the second reason is the right reason, I think we'd have to look at the death sentence for anyone involved. Yeah, that would, that would be nice, Scott. Somebody needs to prosecute that. Somebody needs to prosecute that. Probably won't happen until we get a different president and a different uh, attorney general. But somebody needs to prosecute that. Amen, brother. Amen. All right. Uh, That is the Doc Washburn Show for today. You've been listening to episode 46 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the 10th. Well, that's the way it is. Wednesday, December 15th, 2021.